You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Kevin Coldiron, who is the co-founder of or founder of Algert Cold Iron Investments, which is a hedge fund based here in San Francisco and has worked previously at BGI and other places. And most importantly, is on the faculty at Berkeley Haas, teaching in the Masters of Financial Engineering program and the author of this book or co-author of this book right here, The Rise of Carrie. This is one of those books that you read it and you just start seeing the world in a very different way, you know, and I've been doing finance for 30 years and there were some bits and pieces that I just hadn't assembled together in quite the way that you did. So it's a very insightful book. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Now, look, the word carry is something that anybody who's been in the world of finance knows. And when we think about carry, we think about these situations, particularly in, say, currency markets where you're borrowing at low interest rates and then you're lending at high interest rates in a different currency, or maybe you're shorting short-term instruments and and going long, long-term instruments to kind of profit from the the yield curve. And and all of these are are seen as kind of strategies where you're like picking up pennies in, in front of a steamroller. The idea is that these are strategies which in the long run, you're not supposed to make any risk-adjusted returns, but for a long period of time, you get rewarded for bearing this risk. It's like providing insurance. It is, but you define carry in a much, much broader way. But maybe we could just start by walking through exactly how traditional finance thinks about carry and, and whether or not it makes sense as a strategy. Well, carry has its roots, like you say, as an insurance function in the markets. And I think some people have read our book and come away with the view that we're saying that all carry trades are bad. And that's definitely not what we're saying. In fact, carry, because it is very closely related to providing insurance and providing liquidity, is necessary for financial markets to function. So I want to say that off the bat. That said, the thesis of the book is that this type of activity has spread so far and wide and become so huge that it's now a destabilizing force. So hopefully, you know, we'll get into like why that's the case. But I I wanted to make that statement off the top of the show. So carry really in its insurance function, you could think back to like the agricultural markets where, you know, if you're a farmer and you've got a crop that's, you know, it's the wintertime and your crop, you're not gonna be able to harvest your crop until the summer. You could basically sell that, some of that crop forward. Someone could say, okay, I'll buy it off you in the summer. And all the price I'll pay you for is a little bit below what the current price is. So As a farmer, you get to guarantee, you get to ensure that you can sell your crop at a certain price, but you pay for that insurance. You you pay by only being able to sell at a lower cost. And that's a form of a carry trade. The the speculator who agrees to buy the crop from the farmer in six months' time is carrying the risk that the price will fall below what he has agreed to pay for it. So that's kind of the origins of a carry trade. And just in that description, hopefully you can get a sense of it's really a bet on the world staying the same. In that world, if there's not a lot of volatility in the price of the crop, 
then the carry trader will be able to harvest and sell at a higher price in the summer. So it's a bet on volatility staying low or even falling. In the currency- You're selling calls or puts, same thing. Exactly, right? Selling calls or puts is also a bet on the world staying the same. If the world stays perfectly the same and you sell out of the money call option, the call is gonna finish out of the money and you're gonna collect the premium. I don't wanna race ahead, but it's really critical. We kind of define carry trades very broadly as having four characteristics. One is that they're short volatility, right? So it's a bet on the world staying the same. They're trades that make money if nothing happened. Second is that they're all involve leverage in some form or another. They're liquidity providing. So as carry trades grow, it enhances our ability to access credit and enhances our ability to trade financial assets. So like you go back to the farmer example, the existence of the carry trader makes the farmer more liquid, right? He can sell part of his crop now, get the cash, do something else with it. And indeed, the carry trader could lay off some of his risk to another carry trader. So the existence of people willing to accept these risks makes the market more liquid. And then lastly, the fourth characteristic is it has this kind of what you referred to at the beginning, this sawtooth return pattern where you collect premium steadily and that's punctuated by occasional drawdowns, very big drawdowns. And those drawdowns tend to happen at bad times when other asset markets are doing poorly. We start off in the book by talking about carry trades as having all four of those characteristics. In the standard models, you're not supposed to be able to make any kind of alpha from doing this. If you're getting some kind of compensation, then it's because you're basically bearing some kind of risk, right? Correct. Yeah. Indeed, in the currency markets for a long time, it was thought that the interest rate differential was really just an offset for expected future depreciation in the currency, right? So the Aussie dollar has a higher interest rate than the US because we expect it to depreciate over time. And then what was realized empirically is that's actually not the case. A lot of these high yield currencies, in fact, appreciate, or if they depreciate, they don't depreciate to the same extent as the interest rate differential. So the carry trade over time can be profitable. And then the counter explanation is, well, that's not alpha. That's just a compensation for these occasional very large drawdowns, these occasional what we call carry crashes. You're being rewarded essentially for bearing this kind of negative skew. Is that the idea? Precisely. It's a negative skew. It's an occasional very large drawdown. And it's a drawdown that happens at a really bad time. If you think about the carry crashes we've experienced in our lifetimes, they all they line up with financial crises, right? 1998, the Asian financial crisis, 2008, 2020. So it, carry is a risk that kind of amplifies risks that we already have. That's why as carry grows and expands, it's a destabilizing force because it's already amplifying the underlying risks in the market. But at least in the standard models, if the risk is priced accurately, then this is just part of a well-functioning financial system. But I think one of the things that you're highlighting in the book is that the the risk isn't really priced accurately. And part of this has to do with kind of the, the socialization of the downside to some extent. Or it could also have to do with in behavioral finance, or we talk a lot about kind of agency issues or availability heuristic. And so in the book, you also talk a little bit about how the longer you go without 
one of these crashes, the more incentive there is for people to pile into this position. Just based on the nature of the reward structure for both kind of the entities that are engaging in the trade and the individuals who work for it. Could you talk a little more about that? Because I think when people talk about the, the 2007 crash, right, a lot of that really comes down to, at least a lot of people say that's because of these agency issues. Could, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So if we talk about the agency issues, that's something that I just became much more cognizant of over time as I ran money, I managed money in a hedge fund format, which is typically you get a management fee, but really the payoff is an annual incentive fee. So that's a situation that I think over time incentivizes you to follow carry strategies because while you do experience occasional large drawdowns, they might come every decade or so. And in the interim, you're collecting profits, you're collecting an incentive fee, and you're not paying that back when you have the drawdown. Mm -hmm. And indeed, because what I said at the beginning, the drawdowns happen when everything else is doing badly. It's easy to say, well, that you know, is an act of God, a systematic risk. It's not my fault. And you see these incentive structures everywhere in the markets, not just hedge funds, investment bank, trading desks, even CEO compensation um, is often linked to a kind of short-term return targets, and they don't get paid back if five years down the road, the company has a huge earnings disappointment. So I think there's an incentive for both individuals and institutions to favor that kind of payoff. And then the second thing that you alluded to is the socialization of risk. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or... Yeah, let's talk about that. But I just to finish up on the thought you just brought up, which is right at the retail... So in behavioral finance, it's easy to talk about at the ordinary individual level where someone is going to take out the earthquake insurance immediately after the earthquake. And then the longer you go you know, without an earthquake, the more you start scrutinizing that expenditure and you start thinking, wait a second, why am I doing this? And so the longer you go without a crash, the more you're going to double down on, on selling all these options. But at the institutional level, I think a lot of people are more puzzled because they think, hey, these are sophisticated players. They have sophisticated shareholders. They have a sophisticated board. Why would they ever put in place an incentive system which encourages the, the managers to think in such a short-term way? And why would these managers then incentivize their traders to think in such a short-term way? And you're going to talk about the socialization of risk, but is there something more to it? Is there some kind of, I don't know, short-termedness or nearsightedness that leads to this or an underappreciation of the risks? I just think competitively, it's very difficult to say we're not going to go down this path because we're worried about a crash that happens every decade. And you might be proven right, but it's not likely you'll be in business or be employed by the time you're proven right. And a lot of managers, you know, Nassim Taleb wrote the book uh, Fooled by Randomness, oh, I think two decades ago. And, you know, a lot of the ideas in his book are very similar to what we're saying. And in the aftermath of that, people set up these kind of long volatility strategies to basically take advantage of the what would be a carry drawdown would be a big spike in returns for these strategies. And they really have never got, it's very difficult to get traction in that business because people get bored with losing money every month, getting a statement that says your fund value has gone down. And so while it's an idea that I think makes a lot of sense, but you, ha you have to look at it in a portfolio context, you can't just look at it as a line item investment. It has to be, has this hedged the other stuff in my portfolio? It's just the institutional setup isn't like that. And maybe that's 
irrational at a macro level, but I think for individual actors, it's rational to prefer the incentive structure they have. And that's how we've ended up with it. So one of the insights that I got from the book is that, you know, while I was thinking about these carry trades in a relatively narrow sense, you highlight that if we look around, we see carry trades everywhere. And in particular, you talk about how the S&P 500 itself is really like a carry trade. And you talk about VIX and, and so forth. Could you elaborate on that idea that, that it's everywhere and all pervasive in the modern financial system? Sure. We can think about at the corporate level, right? There's plenty of studies that have shown that non-US companies act carry traders. There's a, a good study about Chinese companies that it is actually quite fascinating this was mid-2000s, the Chinese regulators wanted to clamp down on leverage, so they, they were trying to be prudent, and so they, they restricted the amount that companies could borrow domestically. And then what happened is they just started issuing debt in U.S. dollars at a very low interest rate, taking that money, converting it back to RMB, and then on lending it within China. And what was fascinating is they split the sample between companies that were profitable and unprofitable. And it was the unprofitable companies that were doing it. In other words, they, they weren't competitive in their base industry. They basically became a shadow bank, used carry trading as a way to make money just by issuing dollar bonds, converting it back to their local currency on lending it at higher interest rates. That's one example. Like even homeowners in Hungary, right? <laughs> You're like, Home, just a- that was a quite an extraordinary example, right? Where, you know, the Swiss National Bank said, okay, we're not going to let the Swiss currency appreciate. Um, of course, Swiss interest rates were very low at the time. Hungarian interest rates um, were much higher. And so Hungarian homeowners were offered mortgages in Swiss francs. And it seemed like a great deal at the time. I can borrow in Swiss francs at a very low interest rate. Let's call it 1% where at home it would be 5 or 6%. And the Swiss Central Bank has said it's not going to, you know, the exchange rate move, so we're fine. But then they changed their mind, and they allowed the Swiss franc to appreciate dramatically overnight and unpredictably. And so all of a sudden, your mortgage payments in Swiss francs went up 25% if you're a Hungarian borrower, and there was just a whole swath of people who were underwater on their mortgages. And eventually, and this gets back to the socialization, the government had to step in and provide some sort of bailout. What's the magnitude of that? We know about international currency markets and fixed income markets. But when it's all being done, when it's happening at every corporation through a bunch of different channels, how big is this issue, With at least in the international area? I think the honest answer is it's given the data that we have available, it's very difficult to put any kind of precise estimate yeah. on. And, we, you, and know, you, we did have, some case, you did some case studies on Turkey, I think in Brazil, a couple others. Yeah, we estimate the kind of very crude estimate of the size of the currency carry trade. And, but we're also careful to say that there's a lot of stuff in our proxies that might not be currency carry trade and we're missing stuff that should be. So we're reluctant to put a dollar figure on it, but it would be in the hundreds of billions and maybe even more at its peak just in the currency carry trade. But you also say that private equity in many ways is a carry trade. Right. Well, you think about what's going on with a private equity transaction. It's highly levered, right? So they're borrowing money and typically they're investing in an asset that has an underlying yield, cash flow yield that would be higher than, than what they're paying on the debt. And as long as the world stays the same, they can restructure, sell that off to the public markets and, and make a profit. And private equity always comes under pressure when there's spikes in volatility. 
and the valuations of those companies that they own fall. Now, as long as they're not forced to mark that to market, they can ride it out. So a lot of the quote drawdowns in private equity don't necessarily show up in the data because they can kind of smooth their return. Buy to let property is a classic carry trade. We see a lot of that in the UK where Tim Lee, my co-author, is based. People taking out very low interest rate mortgages and then just buying an investment property. And as long as the yield on the investment property exceeds the mortgage rate, that's profitable. But when we see property prices go down, people can get in trouble very quickly. So now what you said, anybody who buys a house with a mortgage is basically a, a liquidity provider in your view, right? And a volatility suppressor and a participant in the carry trade. Yeah. A basic level of trade like taking out a mortgage is, you know, it fits the definition of a carry trade. And it's not as destabilizing a traditional mortgage as a, as a lot of carry trades, because as long as there's a reasonable deposit and you can still cover the mortgage payments in a downturn that you're not forced to sell. So it's really the forced selling in a downturn that creates these kind of fire sell effects and leads to the big carry unwinds. I mean, clearly there was a lot of that happening in 2008 because the equity base was so low in these mortgages. But kind of a traditional mortgage of 20, 15, 20, 25% would be a carry trade, but I wouldn't say it's a significant destabilizing force. So the source of the instability comes from this trading with the market where you're trying to maintain some constant leverage ratio. So you have to you know, buy into the upswings and then you have to liquidate during the, the downswings. And that creates a some pro-cyclical kind of self-reinforcing positive feedback loop, right? Exactly. Exactly. So the other thing I think which you spend a lot of time talking about is spread compression or when you can create that, when you sort of provide this liquidity, it, it converts to less liquid assets into you know more liquid assets because there's a better market for them. And then things which used to not be considered money start to look a whole heck of a lot like money. And you think about the 2007, 2008 crash. And I think the consensus is that big part of this was that commercial paper was really behaving like money and even kind of paper that wouldn't ordinarily look like pretty dodgy stuff was starting to be treated like money. And I think a lot of people in the world of finance think that's just a great thing. How can that be a problem? The more stuff is liquid, the better. If, if we could turn our house into money and we could go buy our groceries with a little piece of our living room, like this would be fantastic. What's the problem here? Yeah. The idea of Harry, as Harry grows, it promotes an increased moneyness of financial assets is very important. And it is something that at a certain scale is good, but at a giant scale, it can be very destabilizing. I mean, look at what happened in March of this year. One thing that's happened a lot in the last 10 years is that U.S. companies have issued debt and used that to buy back equity. So they've, their balance sheet is levered. And the, the debt that they're issuing, a lot of it get, has increasingly got packaged up into corporate bond ETFs, which don't make the individual bonds more liquid, but as a package, it makes them more liquid. And then in a world where interest rates are very low and inflation appears to be normal, say 1% to 2%, there's a huge incentive for people to move their, if you will, demand to hold money from bank deposits to these money substitutes, let's say corporate bond ETFs. So you could argue that that's a good thing. But the problem is the demand to hold money can shift very quickly, right? It's highly unstable. And you have a, 
when you have a crisis like what we had in March, all of a sudden those assets that seemed like they were liquid and seemed like they were as good as money were no longer considered as good as money. People just wanted cash. And then you have basically an evaporation of market liquidity. And that's why I think the key action they took this summer was their support for the corporate bond market. In the end, they didn't have to buy much of the corporate bond of corporate bonds, but just saying we're prepared to do it, return to those assets, return the moneyness to those bonds, to the corporate bond ETFs. And that's a kind of a key part of the financial system. So if you could talk about Chinese companies acting like shadow banks, if you think about that, what I just said, you could argue U.S., companies are acting a bit like shadow banks where their liabilities, these bonds that they're issuing, are packaged up into money-like assets, corporate bonds. So they have levered balance sheets with liabilities that are acting like money, and that subjects them to bank run dynamics. There's no deposit insurance on corporate bond ETFs. So there's no mechanism in place to stop those runs. And that's why the Fed had to step in and essentially provide on-the-fly deposit insurance. And that takes us back to the socialization of risk, right? So if, if the left tail of the distribution of returns is truncated and the government steps in or the central bank step in effectively with the, the Fed put, then this means that the risk is not fairly priced and creates massive moral hazard. Is that effectively the punchline of the story? Is that the entire sector has become too big to fail and that the Fed is going to have to step in to plug the gaps and, and just keep the process going? Yes. I mean, why can't the Fed credibly commit to saying we're not going to step in in this situation? I know what happened in Lehman Brothers and how that backfired. But is there a place where the Fed could simply say, all right, look, this is the firewall. And beyond this point, we're not going to make it very clear. Because if they made it very clear and they were credible, then presumably the moral hazard would go away past that threshold. It's a bit like Russian roulette, right? The, the Fed can say, we're drawing a line here. And markets are a bit like teenagers, right? You set them a boundary and you know it's going to be tested <laughs> repeatedly. Right? And think about this. Okay, what's a natural boundary for the Fed to set now? It's not clear. No one thought they were going to step in for money market mutual funds, for instance, in, in 2008. No. And then no one thought corporate bonds, no junk bond ETFs in 2020. So it seems to me the boundary now is between is equities. I was thinking about this. Okay, maybe they should just come out and say, "We're that's the line. <laughs> We're not crossing that." And you guarantee, I guarantee you, it would be tested. But then you start thinking about, okay, hold on. You've already said that you're willing to protect the corporate bond market. So. If you say, I'm not willing to protect the equity market, you got at least two problems with that. One is you incentivize companies to their capital structure to, to lever up. To, yeah, which we know makes the, the economic system more fragile. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And number two, well, think about how our savings and our pension system has evolved in the last 20 years. What have we done? We've encouraged or we certainly haven't prevented companies for, from shutting down defined benefit. And everyone's got defined contribution plans, right? So basically, you've got 401ks, you're managing your own money. So then you're telling those people, sorry, you're on your own. Everybody else is protected, but you're on your own the next time the market crashes. So, you know, I think that's going to be, I don't know how they can do that politically, personally. The process has evolved 
I think the next big downturn, the Fed will buy equities. And then maybe at some point it's just, okay, we've, the whole thing has become a moral hazard. We have to take a step back and see if we can just rewrite the rules. But yeah, the thing is, it's evolved in a ratchet-like process over time. And I, I don't, I'm sure there's no one at the Fed who's intentionally created this, but you know, it kind of goes back, I think, to long-term capital management, which was a institution that really packaged carry trades in lots of different ways. That blew up. And the worry was really that those same trades were on the balance sheets at, at big financial institutions. And no one really cared that John Merriweather and his partners lost money, but it's was it going to spread to the financial system? So the you know Fed didn't bail out the markets, although it did lower interest rates a lot, which wasn't necessary given the state of the economy. But that soft support for the market when it carried trades blew up in 1998, I think was the beginning of it, right? The beginning of the market starting to understand that part of this risk was socialized. And then we saw it again in uh, 2008, 2020. And each time it happens, each time part of the left-hand side of the distribution gets truncated, it encourages people to do more. And so carry just expands and it becomes a very difficult process to reverse. You also talk about positive feedback loops and, and this is something which I think mainstream economics doesn't do a very good job with positive feedback loops. I know in the world of strategy, which I also teach, we spend a lot of time on you know network effects and winner-take-all dynamics. But here, if you look at something, I mean, LIBOR is a great story about how this little thing becomes this massive edifice, but it's still built on a couple bankers sitting around <laughs> drinking beer, right? Um, the story is crazy. But the same thing is true really of the VIX and the S&P 500, which has really become, it's central to the entire world economy. I mean, there are people that are living in a village in Indonesia whose financial health is going to depend in part on on the S&P 500. When you say that the S&P 500 is the kind of the world's largest carry trade, <laughs> How do we make sense of that? What does that mean? It's probably the most difficult piece of the book to, I think, get across clearly. I'll be honest, like Jamie, Tim and I worked on the book for five years and there was a lot of time trying to hash out exactly what we meant by that. Jamie Lee is a volatility trader and his dad is Tim Lee, who is a macroeconomist. And they were starting to see the same carry dynamics at the micro level. Jamie was seeing that in the embedded in the volatility structure of the VIX. And Tim was seeing it happen at the macro level. And I was seeing all the institutional incentives. That's how we kind of, you know, you said at the beginning, we assembled these different ideas and that's how we, those were the different perspectives. It's all about breaking down the silos. That's, that's where this insight comes from. It was really rewarding. And those guys are smart and, but also easy to, to work with and were, you know, patient with me. There's a lot of back and forth in terms of creating that the text in the book. So that was pretty rewarding. But in terms of the S&P becoming carry trade, we see it in the way, I guess the, the dynamic is that the S&P is the world's hyper liquid market for risk, right? So if you have risk somewhere else in the world and you want to hedge, you might not have derivative markets in Indonesia that allows you to hedge your risk. But you can hedge by using the S&P 500. It might not be perfectly correlated with the value of your asset, but it's going to be pretty correlated, though the world has grown very integrated. So what happens is the hedging, the liquidity demands 
for all this hedging around the world gets embedded in the U.S. market. And if you want to hedge risk, you have to pay, you have to pay a price for that, right? If you want liquidity, you need to pay a premium. So the cost of that hedging gets embedded in this, in the kind of structure of S&P volatility. So we see that on average over time, the implied volatility has been higher than realized volatility. That's a, people call that the volatility risk premium, but that's a relationship that only holds on average over time. There's certain situations when the market does poorly where realized volatility spikes. And so selling that liquidity, selling that protection is you lose. And so people quite naturally don't want to sell options naked. They like to hedge part of that. So there's a lot of uh, volatility selling that gets delta hedged where you try to hedge away some of the directional risk. But of course, the people who are taking the other side of that trade aren't doing it for free, right? They're going to take part of your premium from you. And for them to make money, you need prices to realize volatility to have a mean reverting pattern. I can buy volatility from you every day and then hedge myself over a month. As long as there's some mean reversion in prices over a month relative to a day, you know, I'll make some of that back. So in the book, we talk about the term structure of realized volatility being downward sloping. So volatility over longer horizons is lower than volatility over shorter horizons, which ensures that market makers at the very short term or delta hedgers at the medium term or pension funds rebalancing at a long term, all those people are liquidity providers and there's a compensation for them from the mean reversion. And then the implied volatility curve sits above the realized volatility curve. And that's the compensation people get for providing the insurance and liquidity to people who, who want to hedge their risk. That's how the S&P gets kind of turned into a carry trade because it's acting like a this kind of central hub for liquidity around the world. And, and that's why when the Fed is the ultimate carry trader, they have an interest in the S&P. I think you said in the book that when the S&P crashes, that is the recession. So it's not reflecting a recession or predicting a recession, but it is the recession in today's world. Exactly. You tend to think of, if you pick up a textbook, we think of the market reflects what's going on in the underlying economy. But because of the scale of carry trading and because the S&P is central to this, it's we think it's the other way around. When the S&P has a drawdown, that volatility gets transmitted to the real economy and that causes the recession. I have a sort of slightly more nuanced view, which is that as long as volatility stays within a reasonable bound, then the kind of traditional view I think is true that the markets reacting to the underlying fundamentals. But when you get big moves in volatility, that's when the causality, I think, reverses. And the, ironically, the derivatives market become the primary market. The VIX drives the S&P in, in those cases. Now, I think if this was all limited to financial markets, this would be a, a less interesting story for the general public. But the spillovers are into the real markets. You have uh, misallocation of capital. And I think it, you talk about how this is fundamentally deflationary. And, and this part I found very interesting because I think most people are puzzled, right? With all the liquidity creation that's going on, most people using traditional models would expect us to be in, in a massive in inflationary regime. And I think that right now, following the reaction of the Fed to the coronavirus situation, I think there's consensus that we're heading into an inflationary regime. But I think that you have a very different view of inflation and deflation. 
basically we see the world as in a kind of unstable equilibrium between deflation and inflation. So the idea is that the carry regime as it expands because it promotes the growth of debt and it promotes, and we haven't really touched on this, but it promotes unproductive economic investment. So low real growth rates, those are both fundamentally deflationary. At the same time, when central banks intervene in the aftermath of carry crashes, they're creating a lot of liquidity. And that has the potential to be very inflationary. I guess what we say in the book is that eventually, we sort of imagine that the carry regime will have to end via quite high inflation. Or you say, I think the equilibrium you say is like zero real growth. Exactly. You get to this vanishing point of zero real growth. There's almost no choice but to inflate away the stock of debt that's built up. So there's this, it's unstable, I guess, you know, until we get to that final vanishing point, it's probably deflationary, but you can see a very quick move to inflation. Right. And I think one of the most provocative things you say in the book is that you see the central banks as more or less being captured. So <laughs> right. you know, there's a long tradition of regulatory capture in, in economics. But if the Fed is being captured, who, who exactly is it being captured by? Yeah, I haven't been asked that before. It's not necessarily a particular actor or a group of actors. I think it's just been, it's been captured by the, basically the fear of drawing the line, like we said before, that each crisis, and you hear this, that now's not the time to burn down the house to make a point. Right. And, you know, I think the the behavior in the markets after Lehman Brothers went bankrupt just seared that into their minds. And I can understand that. I, I may very well have made the same decisions in their shoes. So it's like the frog that slowly gets boiled to death. It's not that they're sitting down saying we're powerless. I think they just think we'll do what we have to do to save the system now and then we'll pick up afterwards. And of course, that never happens. So they're captured basically by the growth of carry, by the scale and consequences of the crashes in, in carry strategies when they happen. It's not like we think individual central bankers are, you know, have any malicious intent. They're just part of a system that's evolved in, in that way. So th- to the extent that there's fault, I suppose it's, it goes back to the early days, like 1998, where maybe a, a more laissez-faire approach would have allowed some actors to go bankrupt, maybe some actors in the financial system to go bankrupt, and the risk could have been more properly priced. But I think we're beyond that point now. So if there was a time for them to think seriously about this, it would be when you're recovered from a crisis. Exactly. If we get some time in the next few years, it would be good for the world central bankers to gather and say, is there a way to make this system more stable? The Fed has had to intervene in 2008 and 2020 with these liquidity swap lines. And liquidity swap lines are basically just the Fed lending money to foreign central banks, lending dollars, to be very precise, lending dollars to foreign central banks who then on-lend those dollars to mostly financial institutions in their countries who borrow dollars. So when the private sector is no longer willing to lend those, those financial institution dollars, the Fed's doing it. So the Fed's become the central bank to the world. And you could argue that the U.S. is happy with that, right? Because that reinforces the role of the dollar as the you know, primary reserve currency. So I'm sure there's people who are saying what we wouldn't want to change that. But I think the Chinese are busy trying to change it. And maybe 
there'll be a time in the not too distant future where the Chinese currency, at least to some countries, maybe not to all, is credible enough that the U.S. is forced into action. But even though there might not be any individuals you could point to, there are certainly actors in the system who are who are short volatility who stand to benefit the most. One place to, I think, that you could start is in compensation for corporate executives that they don't have to be compensated with stock options that creates an incentive for the companies then to lever up their balance sheets. And it's kind of part of this process of companies acting like shadow banks. That could happen. Because I think most people post-2008, there was a lot of talk at the time about how the financial sector was siphoning off too much of the economy and and that bankers were getting too rich. And I think post-Volcker rule and post-basically eliminating the investment banking sector, there's been a lot less attention to that. And when people look at the high wealthy people, they think about Jeff Bezos and they they don't think about the bankers anymore. And so, so I think the financial sector has managed its PR a little better, let's say, but that doesn't mean that the rent-seeking behavior has disappeared. It's just relocated. So one of the provocative things I think you say in the book is that perhaps rent-seeking is a big part of what's going on. Could you maybe dig into that a little bit? When real investment is low, real interest rates are low, it incentivizes people to to move more activity toward rent-seeking, which is highly related to, to carry trading. And the classic response to that is some combination of financial repression and inflation, which you could argue we're heading to, you know, the authorities are moving in that direction, whether it's intentional or not. So financial repression is just driving down interest rates as low as possible to make it difficult to extract rents. And then inflation, of course, would erode the value of those rents as well. I think that's by default worth backing into fighting against rent sinking in that way. I think one of the more provocative questions you asked is, what if Bernie Madoff was bailed out by the Fed, right? I mean, it's not an entirely implausible scenario, right? I mean, if there was a sufficiently high level of linkages and there was a sufficiently large danger of contagion, you you could imagine the Fed stepping in in that situation. It kind of reminded me of what I think Henry Mintzberg used to say back in years ago about how the boundary line between a Ponzi scheme and certain financial institutions can blur at some point. That was, I think, Tim's idea, and it was quite a clever one because we all understand how Madoff was a pure Ponzi scheme. There was there was actually nothing of no economic value there whatsoever. And you're right; if the linkages were great enough to the real economy and the potential carry-on damage was great enough, it might encourage the Fed to to do something. And so the, you could start imagining just okay. So what we won't uh, a pure Ponzi scheme will never intervene. How close is companies like Tesla to a Ponzi scheme. I don't want to get Elon Musk mad at me, but I mean, clearly the valuation there relative to anything I understand as economic value is astronomical. I mean, is that a company that, you know, would qualify as a Ponzi scheme? So yeah, I guess what we're saying is that it's very difficult now for them to kind of make clear rules in terms of when they're going to intervene, what markets are going to support, what they're not. And absent that, kind of defaulting to supporting more and more each time, regardless of the underlying economic value there. You proposed a hypothetical of something you call the anti-carry regime. And you say that it's an alternative vision. You can imagine a a world like this, and it's certainly a a real possibility. And it's an inflationary regime. Is this something we should be contingency planning for if we're doing scenario analyses as actors in the economic system? I think so. The idea is that, talked before about how 
in the world that we've lived in for the last 30 or 40 years, volatility at longer horizons has always been lower than volatility at shorter horizons, which is another way of saying that over time, things mean revert. And I think it's easiest to understand that at a very long horizon, which is that if you believe in some notion of fundamental value, that prices can't deviate from that forever. There's this kind of pull back toward gravitational pull back toward fundamental value. Okay. What about in a world that kind of gradually gets where monetary stability gradually erodes, where inflation gets higher? You know, it's 3% this year, but you think it's going to come back, but it doesn't. Next year, it's 5%. Then you think it's going to come back. It doesn't. Kind of like what happened in the late 60s and early 70s. In that world, you can imagine there being momentum, not mean reversion, right? As markets, I know you teach behavioral finance, markets anchor and adjust. They anchor to a certain value. Oh, inflation's higher than it was. The Fed's kind of losing control and it gradually prices move to catch up, but they're always a little bit behind. And in that world, the slope of the volatility curve, realized volatility curve is up. You have momentum, if not at all horizons, at most horizons. And this notion of fundamental value becomes hazier. And in a hyperinflationary world, no one really knows what fundamental value is because there's so much just underlying uncertainty. So that's not a stable world, but it's certainly a world I don't think is impossible to imagine us in for some period of time, right? I guess eventually you'd have to have a new kind of monetary regime replace it. But in that transition period, I think it's totally plausible that you could have momentum at relatively long horizons for an extended period of time. You imagine a world in the book, I don't know when you finished the book, but you imagine a world where the government would just write checks to people. <laughs> and, uh, and as I was reading that, I, I, I thought, kind of happening right now, <laughs> right. the government sending out checks yeah. to everybody, right? Yeah, we, fin- we finished the book in spring of 2019. Okay, you hadn't gone through this. But you also mentioned that in today's world, if there were an anti-carrier regime, there's this kind of an out that didn't exist before, which is this, the cryptocurrency. And the cryptocurrencies are maybe a way of checking out of the, the currency regime. Have you given a lot of thought to the to where cryptocurrencies could, and I don't mean kind of stable coins, some kind of currency that has an independent value like Bitcoin, but actually something that worked? Yeah, right. I haven't got to the point where I have a real clear view of what a cryptocurrency would have to look like to make it a viable replacement. And we talk in the book about it needing to have a significant cost of production and ideally have some relationship to the real asset base of the economy. So Bitcoin definitely has a real cost of production, but has no relationship to the underlying asset base of the economy. So I don't doubt that Bitcoin is going to be around as a, at minimum, as a hedge against this sort of monetary instability or potential for monetary instability that we're talking about. I definitely believe that. And it obviously plays other roles in facilitating transfer of money in places where normally you would pay a very high fee. And so I think it has some transactional role, but the custody part of it is hasn't been solved, at least as far as I understand, right? I mean, I don't want to walk around with a significant chunk of my wallet on a flash drive. And I guess there are institutional arrangements that... You can have uninsured deposits with Coinbase or something. Yeah. You can, and I do, (laughs) but not enough that I would put a significant chunk of my money into it. So I think there's structural problems, but that don't seem 
unsolvable, but for Bitcoin, but I don't see it, you know, as it has no claim on the underlying productive capacity of the economy, which I think ideally a currency would. So we've talked, Tim and I and Jamie, about subsequent editions or another book where we try to address how do you create a world that's maybe immune to carry growing, but I, I don't know that we've totally agree or cracked that problem yet. But I do think cryptocurrencies are, are here to stay and they'll be continued innovations to try to deal with the problems that we've got in our current system. Well, last question. I originally trained as a historian and at the very end of the book, you start expanding your ambition <laughs> well beyond 21st century um, America. And you say ancient Rome was a carry regime and you know pretty much carry is power. And I started imagining what would it be like to write history of the world from this perspective? You know, guns, germs, and steel built around the concept of carry. Were you just waxing poetical towards the end there? Or were you, you actually seriously thinking that you're onto a a really profound concept here. I feel like it's the latter. And I definitely had friends who wrote to me and said, okay, when you started talking about the French Revolution, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know you can read those chapters and you may say, oh, well, you're, you're overextending. But at least at, at minimum, it causes you to think. Jamie talks about the idea, you know, we talked about yield, right? And a carry trade is, you know, you're borrowing at a low interest rate, you're investing at a higher interest rate. And we typically think about that in investment terms as related to risk. You're investing in the higher risk asset, but you could think about it in terms of need, right? Where the yield is a function of relative power in an economy. And I'm able to access capital at low interest rates because I'm in a powerful position. Essentially, I don't need the money. And if I'm lending to you, if I'm borrowing or buying a security that you've issued at a higher interest rate, you're someone who needs that capital. So it's basically a flow of payment from those who need it to those who don't need it. It's a power relationship that might not. Now, you could people would come back and say, well, yeah, that need is related to risk, right? You're a riskier borrow. Think about the example of African-Americans in the U.S. where people had very good credit still couldn't get mortgages. Or if they did, they paid extractive rates because the system was designed to basically reduce their power. Now, that's a very specific example, but it shows that the relationship between yield and risk doesn't always have to hold. It can be much more a function of your relative power in a society. And so what we're talking about is that the Kerry regime fundamentally, if you believe all are part of that story, that, that the rents that are getting extracted by carry traders is a flow from the, the needy to the people who don't need it, from the less wealthy to the wealthy, and that it's no accident that wealth inequality has gotten worse as the carry regime has you know, gotten larger. Of course, in, in history, as soon as you go from the short run to the long run, everything gets upended. My students are like, yeah, oh, okay, I can get 8% annualized returns from investing in equities. Let's see what that looks like 100 years out. If you invested in equities and you could get 8% a year and you started investing in ancient Rome, you know, you'd have many, many exponentials of the entire global net worth. So obviously, it must not happen every year. <laughs> if you invested in German equities in the 20s, you're probably not sitting on very much right now. So I think that this would be a really good story to tell. Kevin, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I know you got to run off and teach. I recommend this. Actually, I was just interviewing Rick Bookstaber earlier today, and I, I recommended this book. I said, you got to check it out. Fascinating story. That. And I hope it inspires uh, a whole bunch of other books and a whole bunch of other stories around it. So thanks again, Kevin. 
That's my pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me on. And we actually do have a website called riseofcarry.com where there's links to research related to this and some podcasts and articles on it. So if you kind of want to explore it more, that's one way to do it. But thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.